All right, thanks for joining us. We're here today for podcast 17. Might be a little echoey in the background. I'm in the process of moving some stuff around, which has left no furniture where we're currently sitting. We've got Kevin again with us, and today we're going to talk about AHJ. Now, to begin, I have sat on NFPA committees in the past. I am not professing to be some NFPA expert here. I would love it if some people that are experts in NFPA want to provide some feedback to this. Maybe even uh, we could do a podcast with them and discuss it. And this is AHJ for the layman or the layperson. You know, what we think AHJ is and how it affects us. Because pretty much all the NFPA standards has this AHJ you know, definition in it. And we're talking specifically right now about 1,006, 1,670, the technical rescue standards. And we want to talk about what this means to you and our opinion of what it means to you and how we interpret it. Once again, don't take this to court. Uh, You'll probably lose. And, uh, you know, if you got a contradicting opinion of this, I'd love to hear it. I really would. So, first of all, Kev, what is AHJ mean? What's it defined as? So, the it, it, AHJ is actually one of NFPA, NFPA's official definitions, which means it exists across standards. It's not just a definition within any one standard. And the, the official definition of NFPA, authority having jurisdiction, uh, heretofore known as AHJ, in, in three... 3.2.2 NFP official definitions is an organization, office, or individual responsible for enforcing the requirements of a code or standard or for approving equipment, materials, an installation, or a procedure. So that's the official definition. And what you find is that that little acronym AHJ is sprinkled liberally through most NFPA documents um, and standards. And sometimes it's confusing as to who they're referring to when they said the AHJ shall this or the AHJ shall that. Well, can we jump to 1006 there? We got, we got stacks of paper and computers <laughs> in front of us with all the different NFPA standards we've got kicking around. And there's a few here we just want to take a look at and read out. So what we're reading out of here is 1006, the 2017 standard, or sorry, 2017 edition of the 1006 standard. And we're looking at things right now like 132, uh, 131. Uh, We're going to look at like 134 and then into 137, 138. So Kev, we're just going to do a little bit of reading here, but if you want to follow along on your own in your own little notebook there, this is where we're looking at. So... NFPA 1006, which is Technical Rescue Personnel Professional Qualifications, first page, um, 1.3.1. The JPRs, JPRs being Job Performance Requirements, uh, shall be accomplished in accordance with the requirements of the authority having jurisdiction, AHJ, and all applicable NFPA standards. So right off for NFPA 1006, which is, you know, the document when we prepare a training course, we refer to, say, what do we need to train our people to be able to do? Um, it's saying that those job performance requirements have to be made in accordance with the AHJ and the NFPA standards. So two questions. Number one, who is the AHJ that they're referring to here? 
And also of note is that they're saying the AHJ may have requirements that differ from the NFPA standards, and you have to answer to both. So that's interesting, and we're going to jump in that a little bit more. We're going to read another one here that really starts to take a look at the AHJ's multiple organizations or agencies. And this here is 138, 1.3.8 of uh, 1006. Prior to training to meet the requirements of this standard, personnel shall meet the following requirements. Education requirements established by the AHJ. Age requirements as established by the AHJ. Medical requirements, AHJ. Job-related physical performance, AHJ. Now we get into emergency medical care performance requirements as per the AHJ. Then we get into minimum requirements for hazardous materials, incident, and contact and control training. I'm paraphrasing here. As approved by the AHJ. And psychological support education requirements established by the AHJ. Now this would lead us to believe as we've already stated, the AHJ cannot be a single person here. There is no one person inside of your organization that can establish educational, age, medical, physical performance, your licensing of your medical license, your hazmat, and psychological support evaluation decisions as one dude or dudette. It just doesn't happen. There's going to be multiple people. Agreed? Agreed. And just to to put an exclamation point on that, uh, 1.3.9 of 1006 states, wherever in the standard the terms, so any of these following terms, rules, regulations, policies, procedures, supplies, apparatus, or equipment are referred to, it is implied that they are those of the AHJ. Huh. That's a whole lot of... um, Geography to cover by uh, the AHJ. So, yeah, you're right. It, it just doesn't um, pan out that it's any just one organization. So who are the people that we look to as AHJs to define some of these requirements that NFP has basically said these requirements need to be defined by somebody who is an AHJ? Right on. So I would assume something like emergency medical care performance requirements for entry-level personnel developed and validated by the AHJ. That's going to be the person that holds my medical license, whether that be the medical oversight of the city or for us, BCHS, who holds my medical license and the competencies that occur within that. Yes? Yes. And obviously there's some overlap there. Um, You know, your medical license, we have this thing in British Columbia called the EMA Licensing Board. They're the ones that have the standards and hold your license. Your employer also has a medical director who is stipulating what you can actually operate to within the parameters of that license. Um, and sometimes perhaps outside the parameters of that license. By outside the parameters of that license, I just mean... My department. Yeah, yeah your department. Um <laughs> No, my, de- no. my department also does things like epi and like epi pens, things like that, yeah. which are outside of the license, but is covered yeah. by our medical director. EMA licensing may say you can do these things, or you have to be able to do these things. You're allowed to do these things. It may say you're not allowed to do these things, and then there's this other area of things that it is neither specifically allowed or disallowed. That your medical director may say yes, you may or may not do these other things. So in that case, you have two different personnel or organizations performing the role of AHJ and their their statements, their what 
what they're producing that you're referring to may overlap. You mean their rules, regulations, policies, procedures <laughs> exactly <laughs> are now part of that AHJ. So things like educational requirements, age requirements, medical requirements, job-related physical requirements, I'm assuming that's the city or your county or whoever you're working for. That would probably be things determined by your employer. um, Although, you know, the governmental agencies um, may have things in their things such as age requirements or something like that. Well, perfect example. We have to work done at 60. Yeah. So that that would be an AHJ by our federal government because I cannot work as a firefighter past the age of 60. So that's going to be one part of that AHJ. Some of that rules and regulations is coming down from our federal government then. Mm-hmm. So like if we just go through 1.3.8, um, your educational requirements as a firefighter are established, well, prerequisites by your employer whether they want you college educated or they think college high educated, school, ed- educated <laughs> or they think high school is enough. Uh, educational requirements could also be in the province of British Columbia, for instance. The Minister of Labor decreed that NFPA training standards are the training standards for firefighters in BC back in 2003. So, again, you could have a couple of different organizations uh, applying educational well, requirements. Well, the playbook. Yeah, as well, the playbook. So that's the, our office, so the fire commissioner puts out what every fire department has to do in order to be considered interior, exterior, full service. Without getting too much into that, we've now just established three or four AHJs for just 1.3.8 sub-peril one. Yeah, and you know we can go on and have the same discussion about each of those seven sub pairs and we haven't even gotten into the meat of the standard. Yeah, we're still in the first uh, number one here. So this brings up a couple of points. So, and I'm talking BC, but there's going to be other places around. So BC PEPSAR, so the Provincial Emergency Program Search and Rescue uh, Committee, would it be? So they, before he cuts into that, they've outlined a standard for rescue, much like California has a separate standard for rope rescue that they have to follow. So... Is that inside of the NFP? Is that outside of NFPA? Is that complementary? Does it conflict? What's the... It, it's outside of NFPA. So within, in British Columbia, um, we have quite a large search and rescue organizations. There's 80 um, independent search and rescue teams. It's because half this province has nothing in it if you've ever visited. <laughs> yeah, except some gorgeous <laughs> mountains. Um, those teams are work under EMBC, Emergency Management BC, which sets uh, a number of standards. Um, and several years ago, they rewrote the Swift Water Training Standards and as well the uh, Rope Rescue Training Standards for search and rescue teams in BC. Now, it is confusing because a lot of the terminology they used when they wrote those standards mirrors the terminology that's used in NFPA. Things like awareness level, operations level, technician level. Um, specifically in the swift water side and the rope rescue side, we have awareness level and then technician one and technician two. Uh, so, and a lot of the things, a lot of the JPRs, the job performance requirements within those various levels of the standards, mirror or they're very similar to NFPA. However, in some cases, some of the things that might be, for instance, in NFPA operations level are in technician level within the EMBC standard. So 
they're not exact copies. They, they, they aren't necessarily directly relatable, but they're very much um, similar material. And the waters get muddy even, fur- even further again. You mentioned California has its own set of standards for rope rescue that follows a, a similar pattern. There's ASTM levels for rope rescue training requirements, ASTM 1, 2, and 3. Um, and there's a few other organizations that define training and response levels. And again, it's confusing because they all use similar terminology and they're all talking about the same thing. So you need to be very clear when you're talking about these things. What is the age, J that you're working to? Okay, so how does this affect us, though? Because, so you're working, I mean, Mountain Search and Rescue is in NFPA 1006. Yes, it is. So... Actually, more accurately, yes. it's in, um, rope rescue exists within both 1006 as individual requirements and 1670 as organizational and training requirements for organizations providing search and rescue the actual environment that that rope rescue is practiced in would be at urban uh urban wildland interface wildland cliff mountain gully etc is not actually defined it's just are you using ropes to rescue somebody there is a chapter in nfpa that's all about these are the standards for doing rope rescue Uh, and there's no specific environmental requirement um, other than the the ones that all exist within 1670 in terms of confined space. If you're getting wet, going in a hole. Etc. Et <laughs> um, but yeah, there's no difference in NFPA between urban, wilderness, or um, okay. mountain. So back to that, if you're a mountain rescue team and you're using NFPA, you're following for mountain rescue, and your AHJ then might be Pet BC SARC. Correct. This so goes, what? Who do you follow? This goes back to uh, one point three point one. Accom- your JPRs need to be accomplished in accordance with the requirements of the AHJ and applicable NFPA standards. Now, in the in the case of the search and rescue teams in BC, they simply follow the EMBC standard. They have no requirement to follow the NFPA standard. However, as a firefighter, a fire department providing rope rescue services within the province of BC, again, the Ministry of Labor decreed you have to follow NFPA training standards. So you have to use the NFPA standard. And if you're going to interact and work in the EMBC world at all. And that happens up on the North Shore of the Vancouver Mountains on a pretty much daily basis yeah. in the summer. Uh, then you need to also be looking towards the EMBC standard. Um, I guess this is one of those we don't have an answer. <laughs> it's it's one of those ones where it's difficult. It's not so much that they're contradictory. It's that they're, they're too, too close and similar but different standards. And there are, this is just one example, and there are, we can bring up many, many examples. We pick this one because we're familiar with it. We're rope geeks, right. So we have two similar standards. You just need to primarily make sure, figure out what's your primary AHJ, make sure you answer to that one, and then have, once you're comfortable with that one, have a look at the other one and see what do we need to change or add to be able to also work in this environment. Um, and it's, it's really important to understand and remember that with NFPA, NFPA is not so much prescriptive a lot of the times as it is objective. 
Um, the EMBC standard, for instance, is a lot more prescriptive. Yes. It's going to tell you how to do it. A lot more directly how to do things with your, your ropes, your equipment, and your people versus NFPA, which is just going to say you must be able to do this type of... You must of be able rope. to ascend a rope with a belay line, change exactly. over, and repel. It doesn't say how far, what device, where I know with the EMBC, it tells it's more breaking down into devices. Exactly. So what happens when the HJ is wrong? Now here's, I mean, like, because now NFPA is referring to an outside organization that has influences on it, especially political influences and stuff like a WorkSafe BC, which is our workers' compensation for our province. And I'll give you an example of where maybe we'll go with where there's a gap and then we'll talk about where it's wrong. WorkSafe BC decrees that all firefighters must use all ropes and associated rigging equipment must meet NFPA 1983, current edition. So we were using stretchers up until not so long ago where there was no NFPA standard on stretchers. There is now, but there is no NFPA standard on webbing. There is no NFPA standard on Prusik, at least in 1983. So, yeah, we use that stuff every day. Is it legal? Is it illegal? Is it wrong? Is it right? <sighs> that is, um, I'm almost hesitant to answer that question. Uh, we all use equipment that doesn't, um, I shouldn't say we all. Uh, a lot of us, especially in North America, uh, use equipment that isn't certified by an independent body at some point, or, or that that we know of. For and, and yet, you're right. Webbing um, and non-life safety cord. Now, this is where a manufacturer could weigh in for us. What standards are those things that you're providing and that we're using that aren't listed in NFP 1983? Um, what are the standards that are there for them? And I, I know there's a, a raft of ASTM standards covering equipment. For instance, I know there's an ASTM standard on stretchers long before there was an NFPA one. Um, I've never uh, had the opportunity to read that standard, um, not that it would make any sense to me if I did. Mm -hmm. um, so there are definitely other AHJ-type authorities out there that have provided standards for some of that equipment. But the root of the problem that you're referring to is we have one AHJ who specified you must use X. use or do things in accordance with another AHJ but that AHJ doesn't cover everything that you actually use or do in the real world so question there is um, well I, I think it goes back to the original definition of AHJ which is any organization or person who's responsible so if, for instance, you are taking responsibility of your rope rescue program and you're going, this, the techniques that we are trained to and use for rescue utilize webbing and cordage in this instance, it's you know, up to the person responsible running the program. So now we're talking about, again, the person responsible who is also an AHJ, but you know, the one who's closest to the program, to, the, to do their due diligence in that both the, the skills and techniques that they're training in are current and accepted, as well as ensuring that the equipment they are using, even though it falls outside of the equipment covered by the identified AHJ standard, in this case we're talking about NFP 1983, um, is reputable equipment. That means, if you, are you purchasing it from a reputable manufacturer? Does it 
reputable standard. Yeah, does it have, is it made to some kind of a standard? And again, we're not experts in this. I don't know what the standard is on, on non-life safety cord. Um, well, I think an easy one here might be, I know with my fire department, we use ASAPs and ASAP locks. Okay. That is a device that does not have an NFPA 1983 certification, or it wasn't built as per NFPA 1983. It's not been UL tested to that standard. It is CE regulated equipment, mm -hmm. yet we utilize it because as the age J, <laughs> me basically, mm. has gone and said there is nothing that our AHJ saying that, you know, has to meet NFPA 1983, there's nothing there that actually does what that device does. There's no NFPA piece of equipment that does that. I mean, tandem prussic belays aren't recognized by NFPA. They're name a belay device that you can repel with, that you can use at a pitch head, that you can use at an anchor, that you can use in all these places mm -hmm. that meets NFPA. I mean, people might go the MPD or the 540. You try using that being suspended in the air doing a pitch head with it mm -hmm. or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, so in, in that case, you're looking to, and to be factual, it's in the ASAP, or for instance, is a device that's manufactured and certified to an EN standard. So sure, the yes. CE mark uh, is indicative of it meeting an EN standard, European norm. So you're looking to another AHJ to sort of fill that vacuum, uh, which is, I think, the preferred way to go. Um, again, due diligence, though, you just always have to recognize, though, that when you don't have that other AHJ or other standard out there to refer to, you're ex you you may be accepting that liability on on your own shoulders. Yeah. Uh, so again, it's or just your about organization, your organization. Maybe. Yeah, you're doing um, some due diligence there. And I think what we've identified here is that the definition of the the, the working definition, the reality of an AHJ is not um, a simple one to answer. It can be a bit of a a quagmire. We've done this dance about standards and regulations between different jurisdictions um, for years in a number of different ways, not even dealing with just the HJ term. Um, this is one of those things that if you're an organization that practices, and we've been talking about rope rescue, but you know, any of the rescue disciplines or, well, specifically utilizing standards within NFPA, um, you need to really have a look at those standards, identify where NFPA is saying that there are items that need to be determined by an AHJ and make sure you know who that AHJ is, whether it's an outside organization, a regulatory body, your own organization, and finding or coming up with the answers to those questions. Okay, so the last one here is, I mean, we're now 23 minutes into AHJs, which is rather unique. What when the AHJs wrong or is not in line with current philosophy or times. And I'll give the example that we have in BC with the HJ has to, in NFPA, it does specify that the HJ um, indicates what the static system safety factor is going to be. That's written Correct. in NFPA. Now, in BC, we fall into a bit of a gray area. Firefighting is covered by Part 31, which doesn't have any specification towards static system safety factors. Part 32 in BC of our WorkSafe regulations indicates a 10 to 1 static system safety factor is required. Now, for everybody that's listened to any other podcast I've done, you'll know that I find that to be a bit of a unicorn. 
Yes, I can certainly go grab some tower crane rigging sheaves to get 10 to 1 safety factors on change of directions in my system, but I really don't want to carry them anywhere. Um, and plus, you start looking at things along your carabiners and your regular rigging, and once we start putting vector forces into this, we're blowing 10 to 1 safety factors completely out of the water. Now, a lot of systems, PAPSAR, that we've already talked about in this podcast, has gone more into a force limiting mode. A lot of people are using force limiting now for this. And so what in this case, when you're the HJ, you're trying to bring your system up, you know, you want to do twin tension rope systems. You're looking at things like jolt forces and force limiting and using devices for force limiting, yet your HJ is still stuck back in 1872 looking at, you know, 10 to 1 safety factors. Is that something that we have to take into concern? What are your thoughts? I think it's definitely something you need to be very aware of. And this is a a problem that arises wherever an organization that has some kind of an AHJ role in establishing standards or regulations runs into whenever they are prescriptive. For instance, and just to go back to Works at BC saying that we need to use all of our ropes and associated rigging equipment must meet NFP 1983. And I forget which actual edition of the standard they reference in the regulation. It used to be an old one. They've changed it now to say current edition. Yeah. So, but have they actually changed that within the regulation or is it in the guideline? I'd have to look it up to be sure. I believe they've changed the reg. So, um, so whenever an organization that has some kind of AHJ capacity is very prescriptive and very definite, they... Well, it's the old maxim. Once you write something down, it's obsolete. Yeah. And um, so organizations that are forward-thinking try and write objective-related regulations and standards and, and, and procedures so that we don't have to change our documentation just because we change from, let's say, a Husqvarna chainsaw to a steel chainsaw. Yeah. Right? Understood. Um so in this case, WorkSafeBC adopted a number of years ago the 10 to 1 static system safety factor, which was predominant within BC um, for a number of reasons. And it, has, it was, has some issues which primarily arise of it being used beyond the original scope it was intended for, which was a simple in-your-head field calculation um, to be something uh, some people turn... Or, into something that was attempted to be very prescriptive. Uh, and we know now through testing and development of systems, and a lot of this based on Kirk's work in this instance and, and the work of EMBC to bring about the new rope rescue standard for wilderness search and rescue, uh, BC has primarily moved to force limiting systems and WorkSafe BC has not kept up. So in this case, we do actually have an AHJ, in this case, EMBC, that developed, tested, and published a standard, the force-limiting dual-capability twin-tension rope system system, um, now being employed by EMBC and the, the various search and rescue teams in BC. So we have a published document. We have a standard. With it, we have an AHJ. So in this case, and this, it's very, it's, well, it's the same thing as your equipment question about your Petzl ASAPs. We have an organization that is referencing a different AHJ rather than WorkSafe BC. 
Because um, theoretically, that's illegal. Because if you get injured, I used to do SAR, you still do SAR. Mm -hmm. If I get injured there, I claim under WorkSafe BC. Yet I'm not following <laughs> WorkSafe BC's guidelines. You know, and I mean, this is part of this whole AHJ and, thing. And I am not the person to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe a WorkSafe BC individual listens to this and can weigh in because this is part of the issue. The, I think everybody recognizes that rope rescue is moving quickly right now. Manufacturers are pushing the limits on new product and new development and new testing, mm -hmm. smaller diameter ropes that are stronger. We're doing things today that we just didn't do when I started and you started doing this 25 odd years ago. I mean, rappelling out on two nylon, laid on with braid on braid ropes out of the army on a double wrap on a steel carabiner. It's kind of by the wayside. Still but, fun though. Yeah, but we've been <laughs> progressing and moving, but a lot of these standard and organization bodies has not kept up. Yeah, and I think this is an example where, and, and um, I'm not a, necessarily a huge super fan of a lot of things within NFPA, but uh, NFPA has done a good job, again, it's been going back probably two decades now, of working through the standards and creating objective and non-prescriptive standards where things can change. And that's not to say they're perfect. They certainly aren't. And where any organization that is an AHJ should be thinking very carefully about once they write something down, have they, have they written it in a method that's objective and is open to the future and future possibilities versus have they simply drawn a line in the sand that's going to get stepped over very quickly? And that's more of a philosophical argument in that, but anybody who is in an AHJ role should be thinking about those kinds of things when they're, they're writing things down. And anybody who's stepping over that line in the sand at minimum, needs to know that they are. Yeah. You know, though, when I step over and I turn around, it's always in front of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. You, you tend to step over them a lot. Um, but at minimum, they need to know that they're stepping over the line in the sand. The, the, the conversation needs to be in play. Um, and it's not like WorkSafe BC is unaware of these things or that EMBC, um, which is a government organization, did this um, and did not consult, talk to, or deal with WorkSafe BC on this at all. Um, however, WorkSafe BC is a, simply an organization which takes a long time to change. Yeah, understood. So I guess we're not going to answer that particular question today. I mean, if someone out there is listening that has some insight into law or regulatory law, I'd love to hear some opinion on that for certain. Anything else on AHJ? We pretty much beat this to death. I, th I think we've we've done the best we can to muddy the waters. There's not a lot of simple answers, and it's just simply every organization working to, and we're referring to NFPA standards here, like I said, needs to identify where is it that the standard that I'm using, where it, wherever it says AHJ, I have to answer two questions. Who is actually the AHJ here? And there may be more than one. And B, what are their answers to the question? What are their standards or their procedures, their policies? Or if it's a manufacturer, their instructions, do I, can I reference all of that? And then are, is my training, my procedures in accordance with that? And we won't even get into the Axelman's off-label use of you when you mention <laughs> equipment there. Off-label, love it. Yeah. All right, that's it for this one. Thanks for listening. And uh, let us know, you know, give us some feedback on these sort of talks about AHJs and NFPA because we'd be happy to dig further into some of these. Have a good day.